You might have noticed uh, in the first verse that Alicia read there in chapter 4, Paul used the phrase puffed up. Uh, Later in verse 18 and 19, uh, Paul talks about people who are arrogant. Uh, It's actually the same word of being puffed up. It's kind of like having a balloon that's that's inflated beyond its capacity. You know, if I were to keep blowing into this balloon, some of you would start to get anxious, right? Like it's going to, it's puffed up and it's going to, it's going to blow up, right? And this is the exact image that Paul wants us to have in mind when it comes to being uh, arrogant. The title for today's message is All Puffed Up. Uh, Tim Keller, in a very helpful little booklet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, talks about this imagery of being puffed up. Paul uses this phrase three times uh, in this passage. And when, when something or someone is puffed up, when something's puffed up on our body, that's normally not a good sign, right? That's how our body tells us that something's not right, that, that things begin to swell. We get, we get brucitis or, or we, get, we, we get some swelling. It, it gets puffed up because things are not healthy. When, when we're puffed up in pride, we puff ourselves up. We think we're bigger than we actually are or than we should be. And we're puffed up, we're really filled with nothing. This balloon might be impressive in its size, but there's nothing on the inside. When humans are filled with pride, when we're puffed up, there's actually, there's nothing really on the inside to base that on. And also when something's puffed up, whether it's on our body or on a balloon like this, we're fragile, right? It wouldn't take much pressure to explode this. And when our egos are puffed up, our egos are fragile. If someone looks at us the wrong way or doesn't affirm us in the way that we necessarily want to, we get, we get cautious, we get careful, we're, we're eas- our feelings are easily hurt because we're so puffed up, we're fragile, And so Paul here is writing to the church at Corinth, and what he really wants to see happen is he just wants to let the air out of the balloon. He wants them to stop being arrogant and to pursue a gospel-centered, God-oriented humility. He says in verse 6, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. He says, I've applied all of these things. What things has he been applying? It, it's all of these metaphors that he's been using for Christian lead, leadership. Remember these? He talked about uh, being servants, diakonos, table waiters. He said, no, we're fellow workers in a farm. This is God's field. We're builders building on the foundation and our work is going to be evaluated. It's going to be burned up. We're servants. We're hyperites. We're, we are our We are the assistants serving the Lord, and we're stewards. We're entrusted with a bit of authority. When Paul says, we've applied these things, these are the things that he's applied. All of these different metaphors for what a Christian leader ought to be. And his aim in applying these things is that they would not go beyond what is written. In verse verse 6 it says, I've applied these things for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. What's written in God's word. When we get puffed up, when we get arrogant, we go outside the boundaries of what God has intended for us as people. 
Paul's been quoting a lot of scripture so far in the letter. Let me show you what I mean. In in chapter 1, verse 19, he quoted, let's get the next slide on the screen. In chapter 1, verse 19, he quoted Isaiah 29, the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. In chapter 1, verse 31, he said, don't boast, boast in the Lord, quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. He goes on in chapter 1, let's go to the next slide, he he quotes chapter 2, sorry, in chapter 2, verse 9, he quotes Isaiah 64, that no one has seen all that God has prepared for those who love him. He quotes Job 5 in chapter 3 about God catching the wise in their craftiness. In chapter 3, verse 20, how the Lord knows the thoughts of men, quoting Psalm 94, verse 11. Paul doesn't want the church at Corinth to go beyond what is written. And he keeps hitting home with this is what's written, this is what's written, this is what's written. And there's this, if you, put, if you, if you balance all of scripture, if you look at everything that he's quoted, you see that there is a general theme that God is great and that we are not. And when we get puffed up and we start to think that we're great, we're going beyond what is written. And so Paul has been using these metaphors of Christian leadership. He's been using scripture to try to remind the church of who God is and who they are to prevent them from being puffed up. And this has a lot to do with the division that was happening in the church because they were dividing over following Paul or following Apollos. And that's what Paul gets at right there at the end of verse 6. He says that none of you may be puffed up or arrogant, in favor of one against another. You see, it wasn't just that the people thought, well, Apollos is a better leader, so we're on his side, or Peter is a better leader, we're on his side. No, at the core of all of that was pride, was themselves being puffed up. It wasn't about Apollos or about Paul or about Peter at the end of the day. It was about their own selfish, prideful arrogance. They're saying, I'm better because I follow a better leader. I, I can choose and I know the difference. I know the weaknesses of Paul and the strengths of Apollos. It was all about their pride. Pride is essentially comparative. We, we, we don't simply take pride in what we know or what we have. It's always what we know and what we have in comparison to someone else. We get puffed up when we think that we're better than other people. C.S. Lewis really nailed it on the head when he said this. He said, pride has no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or, or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Pride in its, in its very essence is comparative. I have more than you. I'm smarter than you. I've accomplished more than, more than you have. I belong to this group and you don't and our group is better than your group. That was ha- what was happening in the church family at Corinth. They were getting puffed up. 
And so as we dive into this passage today, Paul says, I've applied these things. I don't want you to be puffed up. All of this division and this comparison that's happening within the church is just evidence of pride and arrogance. And so Paul wants to let the air out of their balloon. And he's going to share with us today three keys to prevent puffing up. (laughs) Three keys to prevent puffing up. Uh, this is something that all of us are susceptible to. Sometimes arrogance t- can take its form in being loud and outgoing and somewhat obnoxious. Pride can express itself in that way, being puffed up. Pride also can express itself in being subtle and smug and quiet. You can be filled with pride, but never open your mouth. But the way that you carry yourself or walk around, the way that you think about yourself in comparison to others can be very, very proud. And so we all need to hear this message today about how to to be prevented from puffing up. So let's bow our heads together uh, and pray for God's help. Lord, we look to you right now and we pray for your help. We pray that we would have a right-sized view of ourselves and that we would have a right-sized view of who you are, Lord, that we would uh, not be puffed up, that we would not be filled with arrogance, but that we would be set free from these things and that we would pursue humility and gratitude and holiness. So Lord, we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Three keys to prevent puffing up. Here's the first one. Substitute arrogance with thankfulness. Substitute arrogance with with thankfulness. Look with me at verse 7. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They're boasting. They're arrogant. They're boasting about things that they have received without acknowledging that they have no reason to boast because what they have received has been given to them. It it didn't originate with them. They didn't earn it. They simply received it. We celebrated Thanksgiving um, uh, several weeks ago because we're so close to, uh, to our American neighbors and their culture influences us. It's like Thanksgiving all over again, isn't it? Like we get to live Thanksgiving twice. Maybe Canadians just need a, an extra reminder of, of what it means to be thankful. Paul here is talking about everything that the church at Corinth had received. And they're talking as though it originated with them. They're talking as though they had somehow earned it. God is a giver and we are receivers. End of story. We don't don't create, we receive. God gives to us. Everything that is good that we have has been given from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or turning. But just like the church at Corinth, so often we can walk around and act as if the things that we have, we've always had them. Or we can act as though the things that we have, we somehow earned them on our own, forgetting that these things are a gift. Loved ones, salvation is a gift that we receive. Serving in ministry is a gift that we receive. 
Christian leaders, pastors, elders, small group leaders who guide us and help us. These are gifts to be received. Paul, Apollos, Peter, these are gifts to be received. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a church. This is a gift that is to be received. Life itself, the ability to draw oxygen into our lungs, a heart that is uh, pumping blood that is coursing through our veins. All of these things are a gift that is to be received. Going back to the end of uh, chapter 3, where it says in verse 21, all things are yours. How is it that all things are ours? It didn't start that way. All things are ours because we have been given Christ and Christ possesses all things. God has given us all things in Christ. So loved ones, Christians should not be arrogant, should not be puffed up. Grace should produce gratitude in us. Thank you God should be something that we should be whispering under our breath at all times. Thank you God for this day. Thank you God for this food. Thank you God for this opportunity to serve you. Thank you God for the oxygen that I'm breathing. Thank you God for the car that brought me here safely. Thank you God for the furnace that kept me warm last night. Thank you God for my family and for my friends. Thank you God. Thank you God. Thank you God. What do we have? Think about it. What do you have that you did not receive? Loved ones, this, this verse here in verse 7, this is really the key to, to the, the whole book of 1 Corinthians. If, if the church at Corinth could understand their role as receivers and God's role as a giver, just about every problem that this church is facing would be solved. That grace produces gratitude. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, you know, I, I'm pretty smart and I got to where I am because, because of my intelligence. Well, who gave you that intelligence? Why is it that you were born with, with that particular IQ? Why were you given ed educational opportunities that, that someone, that was all the Lord? You're, if, you can't claim that it was your intelligence. Oh, no, no, I, I really worked hard. I worked harder than other people, and that's why I take pride in my achievements. Really? Well, who gave you the ability to work in the first place? Who gave you health and strength? Who gave you an upbringing that enabled you to understand the importance of diligence and hard work? Can you take credit for any of those things? No, you can't. All those things were given, and so we must be thankful. One of the best ways to put arrogance and pride to death is not just to say, oh, I got to be more humble. I got to be more humble. It's just to simply to choose to be thankful. Grace produces gratitude. Gratitude produces, produces humility. It's one of the, it's the first key to preventing being puffed up. Here's the second one. Wait. Reevaluate our expectation. Uh, what we're about to uh, to read in this next section here is one of the most sarcastic, biting, ironic passages in the New Testament outside of Jesus' words to the Pharisees and Isaiah's words to the to the idolaters. This is just dripping with sarcasm. He says, "Already you have all you want." Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. 
And would that you did reign so that we might, we might sh- share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us as, a, as apostles as last, as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you, you are strong. We're, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and, and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Paul says, oh, good for you, church at Corinth. You have everything you need. Oh, wow, look at you. You're reigning like kings. And he's, you know, he's clapping back at them. Good job. You're reigning like kings. You have all that you need. The key word here is the first word Paul uses, already. The church at Corinth was was living out what theologians call an over-realized eschatology. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but over-realized means that it's, it's, it's become true, too true, it's over-realized, and eschatology means the end, that, that the, the, the Corinthians were living as though they were somehow already, that, that Christ had already come back. It is true that all things belong to us. It is true that we will reign together with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, but Paul says you're living like that already. You're, you're all, you already are acting as though you have everything you need and that you are kings. And Paul says, man, if you were kings, if you wouldn't mind helping us out, because we as apostles, we're not living like that at all. And then Paul paints this, this picture in verse 9 of the apostles being exhibited as last of all, like men sentenced to death. This is like a triumphant parade. That If one of the Roman emperors or generals were to go off into war, they would come back and the king, the emperor, would be at the front of the parade. And everyone's throwing flowers at them and cheering. And they're at the very front. And then you'd have the other soldiers and, and all following their different rank. And then at the very end, you would have the prisoners of war, the people that were just defeated, the people who were, now they were being made a spectacle. They were being exhibited, just like it says here in the text, last of all, last in line. And Paul says, that's you up front. You guys are talking like you're the kings, but hey, by the way, we're way back here, exhibited last of all. We're the prisoners of war. You're going through this life and you're getting all of this approval and appreciation and praise from the world. Meanwhile, we're your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and we're being dragged along the back, sentenced to death. The next stop, the Colosseum, where we're going to be torn apart by gladiators and wild animals. Paul says something's not right here. We need to to reevaluate our expectations. What is the Christian life supposed to be like? Are we supposed to be living like kings here on the earth and everyone celebrates us and thinks we're great and we think we're great? Or are we living a life of suffering and sacrifice? Are we dying to ourselves? Are we being alienated and ostracized by the world around us as we choose to follow Christ? 
He says that, that the, the apostles are a, are a spectacle. They're like men sentenced to death. I'm in verse 9. It says, we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. I honestly don't know why Paul brings up angels here. He actually does this a couple of times in 1 Corinthians. And, and uh, I just got to keep studying it, I guess. When he's talking about judging in chapter 6, he talks about judging angels. When he's, when he's talking about head coverings later in chapter 11, one of the reasons he gives is because of the angels. I'm like, Paul, I need a little bit, I need you to explain a little bit more. What do you mean here? Spectacle to angels, judging angels, cover your head because of, because of the angels. Uh, he, Paul's got angels on his mind. I think he's just trying to continually remind the church that there's, there's not, it, we're not just living here and now in this world, the physical world that we can see. That was the worldly wisdom of the time, is that this world is all there is. And every once in a while, Paul seems to insert, hey, remember, there's angels. Hey, remember, there's a whole spiritual realm uh, out there. But we've got to reevaluate our expectations. How do we fit in with the world? When you think about your Christian life, are you walking through, is your relationship with the world where you're on parade and you're royalty and the wor- everything that you say and do, the world cheers you on? Listen, if that's true, if the leaders of this world and if our neighbors, listen, there's no reason that we should be obnoxious or rude or give anyone any real reason in our behavior to not appreciate us or thank be thankful that they know us, but if the world cheers us on completely at the front of the parade, that's, that's a problem. Because, loved ones, we follow a Savior that was despised and rejected. And the apostles were following suit. They're like ones who were, uh, who were sentenced to death. Look at verse 10. He says, we're fools. The world looks at us. The world listens to us, try to teach the gospel, and they laugh at us and call it foolish. But he says, you guys, you're considered wise. So we can't be teaching the same gospel. If, if people call my gospel foolish, but they call your gospel wise, Corinth, you must be leaving something out. You, you're, you're not being faithful. You're not preaching the cross. Paul says, we're weak. But you guys are, are strong. That's a problem. If we go through life as if we have it all together and we're always operating in strength, if, we're, if there isn't a, a daily understanding of our own weakness, then that's a, that's a problem. We've got to rethink our expectations. And then it says, you're held in honor. They're holding feasts to, to praise you and to celebrate you. And Paul says, but over here, we're being held in, in disrepute. There, there's a disconnect. How are we supposed to live in relationship to this world? Loved ones, we're, we are called to love our neighbor. And absolutely, that's what we're supposed to do is love our neighbor. But listen, if all we get from our neighbors is love and appreciation back, then chances are we're probably not loving people the way God would want us to love people. That if we're, if we're at the front of the parade, chances are we're not following Jesus as closely as we, as we think. Look with me at verse 11. He says, to the present hour. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. Notice the, the emphasis on time. In, in verse 8, he said, already. And then now Paul says in verse 11, at this present hour, Paul's like, hey guys, we got to synchronize our watches here, okay? 
because I don't think we're living in the same time zone. You're at the front of the parade, we're at the back. You're already living like this, but at this very hour, this is what is happening to us. And look at the, look at the contrast. So we've got already and then to this hour. He says, you have all you want, but in verse 11 he says, we hunger and thirst. They were rich, but Paul says here, we're poorly dressed and, and homeless. He says, you have become kings. <laughs> Meanwhile, the apostles are like, we're the scum of the world. Imagine that, you know, you know, a, a, a church website, you have that little section about, like, about us, right? And we, we're a, you know, we're a diverse and down-to-earth church family that loves Jesus. And here's the bio of the pastors and the staff. Imagine, like, about us. We're poor and homeless and the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. We're garbage. Imagine that on a church website. Join us on Sundays. That's what Paul's saying here. In the eyes of the world, a world that has rejected the gospel and therefore rejected Christians, this is what the apostles were living and in everyday reality. Paul says in verse 12, we're working with our hands. The, the philosophers of the age said that well, if you've got to work with your hands and do your philosophy or, and teach your religion, then there must be something wrong. Because if you're good enough, people should be willing to pay you to do it. But Paul worked with his hands. Even in Corinth, the, the Corinthian Christians saw Paul live this out when he first got there. In Acts chapter 8, it says that he, he left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul, that's how he got to know Priscilla and Aquila, because they, were, they had the same trade, and they were working with their hands. Paul says, listen, we're not, we're not fancy, full-paid uh, uh, leaders. We, we were willing to work with our hands. But you, church of Corinth, you're, you're at the front of the parade. The, the church of Corinth were living their best life now. Already you've become kings. Already you have all you want. Already you're well respected. Already you're honored. Already in the eyes of the world you fit right in. we got to change and rethink our expectations, loved ones. Is the Christian life all about victory and success? Or is it all about sacrifice and suffering? How do we fit in the world? The church of Corinth had forgot things about counting the cost, about dying to self, about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not acting as though you already have everything that you need. Listen, the, the, we're going to get into this later in the book, but the worship services at, at the church at Corinth were legendary for the, the, the revelation that would take place there and the, the preaching, the teaching, the speaking in tongues, the prophecy. They thought, this is, this is all that we need. You just got to come to one of our church services and you will meet with God. And Paul says, thank God that good things are happening in your church. But it's not over. There's more to come. You know, Around the Duncan household, we, we play all kinds of music, obviously Christian worship music, some Christian rap music, and, and we also play uh, some secular music as well, sometimes some folk music or, or some rock or alternative, and a couple of days ago, I was just feeling this like mid-80s vibe, and so we were playing a bunch of songs from the mid-80s, and this, this one song came on 
by Belinda Carlisle that says, Oh, heaven is a place on earth. Don't act like you don't know it. Don't act like you don't love it. But I'm, I'm, you know, Lindsay and I are raising four, um, you know, four young theologians. And uh, one of them just heard that song and said, that's not true. <laughs> Heaven is not a place on earth. And I'm like, that's what the church of Corinth needed to hear. Because they were living like heaven was a place on earth. And it was a place called Corinth. And that they had everything that they needed. And Paul says, oh my goodness, no. There's so, no ISC, no ear is heard. There's so much more that we can know. Paul says, look at how the apostles were accepted by the world. There's a disconnect. You can't be at the front of the parade when the apostles, the ones who led you to the Lord, are at the back of the parade. We serve a crucified Savior. They put him on a cross. They didn't think he was wise. They didn't honor him. He wasn't considered strong. He was considered a fool. He was considered weak. Look at what it says. Look at what was prophesied about him in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. If it happened to him, it's only right that it would happen to us. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. If it happened to Jesus Loved ones, we can expect it to happen to us. I mean, Jesus even gave us the heads up in John 15, verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you find that you're at the end of the parade, sentenced to death, you need to know you're walking very closely to Jesus. Because that's where they put him. And so... The apostles here, or Paul here, speaking on behalf of the apostles, is saying, listen, you've got to rethink your expectations. How do we relate to the world? What should we expect to get and hear from the world? In the middle of verse 12, he says, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Paul wasn't fighting back as he's on this parade and people are hurling insults at him and telling lies about him. He entreats, he urges them, he tries to explain. But when when he's reviled, he blesses. Again, when we do this, when we respond with gentleness, when we respond with kindness to those who would heap insults on us, loved ones, we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Notice this, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Just like Paul says here, when we're reviled, we bless. And why was Jesus able to do that? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Loved ones, that parade doesn't end at the Colosseum. That parade ends before the throne of God. And it doesn't matter what the world thinks about us. It doesn't matter what we go through in this world. Loved ones, this is a spectacle not before men, but also angels. There's a spiritual realm going on here. And God sees what is happening. He sees his people following in the footsteps of his son. 
And as we seek to follow Jesus, God will put other people in our lives that we can follow as well. And that brings us to our third and, and final point, the third key to preventing puffing up. It's to imitate mature family members. To imitate mature family members. Look, look at verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. He says, listen, I'm not, I'm not comparing. I'm just, I'm just letting you know we're here at the back of the parade and you, you guys need to rethink how you're living and what your expectations are and join us back here. Don't join the world at the front. He says, I don't want you to feel ashamed. There are times later in the book where you're going to see he wants them to feel shame. Shame often is a good thing to turn us from our sin. But Paul says, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul here is introducing another metaphor, the metaphor of a father with child. He called them brothers uh, in verse 6, but now he wants to zero in. So we're all part of the same family, but then Paul now is going to be speaking specifically about how he relates to the church at Corinth, that he is like a father and that they are like his children. So we talked about himself as a table waiter, a deacon, a servant. He talked about himself as a farmhand who's working side by side with, a, with Apollos, one plants and one waters. He's talked about himself as a builder. He's talked about himself as a steward. And now he's, now he's using the metaphor of, of a father. A father who has authority over his children, yes, but that has love for his children. That word beloved at the root is the Greek word agape, which is God's you know, unconditional love. I, I love you because you're my, you're my kids and I'm writing these things to you, my beloved children, verse 14, to admonish you. To, to admonish is to simultaneously teach and to warn it's like when you're with your little niece or, or nephew or with your, your little son or daughter and you're on a busy street and you're, 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 you want to tell them you don't go run out into that street. You, you hold your parent's hand or you hold your uncle's hand and, and you look both ways and you're, you're teaching them but you're also warning them. They're like, those are cars are, are big and they're moving fast and you could get hurt. So Paul here is trying to prevent them from being puffed up. He's warning them. He's admonishing them. He says, I'm your, I'm your father. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. He says, listen, I know you've been to daycare for a few hours, but daddy's home now. I know you had a babysitter. You, had some, you have a bunch of guides but remember, I, I'm spiritually speaking, Paul says, I'm your father. Apollos did water, but I planted. And Apollos and others built on the foundation, but I laid the foundation. I was there from day one. And, and Paul here is reminding them of the relationship that he had with this church. He says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, laying the foundation of the gospel, that we are sinners and that God is a savior. As Trish so clearly explained today in the baptism tank, 
that, that the foundation or what, what brings us together as a family is the gospel that we are sinners who have wandered from God and that God has sent his son to suffer and die for us and that we must all individually make a choice to follow Jesus and to become part of God's family. Paul says, I, I became a father through the gospel. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, just to make sure that we don't misunderstand Paul and thinking that Paul is somehow, he, is he puffed up? Is he, does he think that he's so great and everyone should follow him? Well, he gives some more deep detail about what he means about this imitation in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He says, look, I'm, we're on this parade. I'm following in the steps of Christ. And you follow me as I follow Christ. I'm a more mature believer. I'm a leader in your life. So follow me to the extent to which I follow Christ. Be imitators of me. You know, in a, in a family, in the Greco-Roman world, really in the ancient Near East, really throughout all, all society apart from the last two or three hundred years, that if you were born into a family, you automatically became part of the family business. If you were born into a farm, a farm household, you became a farmer. If you were born into a family that, that did fishing, then you became a, a fisherman. If, if you were born into a family of bakers, you became a baker. Jesus was on the trajectory of carpentry because his father was a carpenter. And so Paul is saying... This is the family business. The gospel is the family business. Imitate me. We also carry on the family name. Parents every now and again, don't, don't we have to have that conversation to say, listen, you don't just represent your first name at school or with your friends or at church or in the neighborhood. It's not just about your first name. It's about your last name. You represent more than just yourself. You represent your whole family. And Paul wants them to understand that, that as, as, as Christians, as part of the Christian family, we have that weight of representing him well. That, that children are to imitate and, and grow up in the values of their parents. And even follow some of their quirks. I'm sure you see it with your own kids or your own nieces and nephews. I, I know every now and again, Lindsay and I will be looking at something one of our boys are say, saying or doing. And, you know, Lindsay will say, that's you. Or I'll say, that's, that's you. Or I'll say, we'll be like, that's grandma. <laughs> or that's grandpa. That, that's, just like, that's just like his aunt. That's because the, fam the family characteristics and traits are passed on. So Paul says, imitate me. Imitate me, first and foremost, as Paul's been saying, imitate me in my willingness to be alienated and ostracized and rejected. Imitate me in my willingness to suffer hardship for the gospel. Imitate me in looking past this world and on to the next. Imitate me as I walk at the back of the parade as one sentence to death, but still have joy in my heart because I know the journey doesn't end at the Colosseum. Imitate me in my humility and my gratitude. Paul says in verse 17, That is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
Paul couldn't get to Corinth right at that particular time, so he sent Timothy. They knew Timothy because Timothy was there when the church was started. Acts chapter 18 again, when Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, it says when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. So Timothy was there when the church got started when Paul got kicked out of the synagogue and when, a new, when, when new believers were converted, Timothy was there. Now Paul's sending Timothy back. Why? Because Timothy's a mature believer. He's part of the family. He's like an older brother or sister or an aunt or uncle. And Paul says, I can't be there, but I'm sending someone who you know, someone who you can trust, a mature believer, to imitate them. He says in verse 17, that you may know my ways in Christ. That word is, it's, it's the same word for road or journey or walk. Paul's laid out a path. It's a well-worn path. Timothy walks in that path. He's part of the family. You see, the Christian life is not just about what we believe. It's about how we behave. And Paul was concerned about the doctrine at the church of Corinth, but he was also concerned about how they were treating one another. And so Paul says, I'm sending you Timothy because I want him to teach you how to behave. And loved ones, we need the examples of mature believers in our lives. We need to get engaged in small group life in our church. We need to serve alongside other mature believers, to be informally or formally mentored by them, to watch how they respond to certain situations, to see how they endure through a difficult work situation. To see how they respond in the middle of a, of a health crisis or a financial struggle. To see how they are content in their singleness. To, to see how they love their spouse or lead their families. To see how they handle despair and disappointment. We need to, we need to watch how other people are walking. And loved ones, we need to walk as though... Others are watching us, life on life, formally and informally, mentoring one another. Not just in what we believe, not just in the content that we teach, but in the way that we live. Verse 18, Paul says, some are arrogant. That word there is the word puffed up. Same word as verse 6. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you if the Lord wills. Remember, there's this pro-Apollos party, which, you know, de facto was also an anti-Paul party. And they were capitalizing on any opportunity to try to make Paul look bad. And the fact that Paul hadn't been back in two or three years, people are like, he doesn't care about us. He doesn't really love us. Paul says, you're my beloved children. I'm like a father to you. I'm sending you Timothy, and I will be there. But he doesn't know for sure. He knows God's in control. Verse 11, he says, if the Lord wills. Then he says, I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, these puffed up people, again, it's the same word. Not of their talk, but of their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's a father. He could come with rod, he could come with discipline, or he could come in a spirit of gentleness. It's up to them. Paul's not afraid of conflict. He says, look, if we're going to have to have it out with these arrogant people, then so be it. I'm just, I'm just warning you. You've got to let the air out of the balloon. You're puffed up. You're arrogant. And 
you need, you need to follow my example, Timothy's example of what it means to walk in humility and holiness. But this is such an important word. Verse 20, he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This is an important word for us. This, is, this was a very important word for the church at Corinth because there was a lot of talk in Corinth. There's a lot of elo- emphasis on being eloquent and, and being acceptable in the world and the way that you talk. Apollos was such a wonderful speaker. That's why so many people wanted to follow him. And in some ways, Paul was thankful for that. And back in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Paul said, In every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge. They were speaking in tongues. They were prophesying. There were powerful sermons that were happening at the church. They were enriched. So much talk. So much speech. It was a good thing. But then Paul also said in chapter 1 verse 17, he says, it can't be all talk. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And not with words with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its powers. Notice how words and power are contrasted with one another. You see, here's the problem. The church at Corinth thought that the words were the power. And that is true in some sense. It is the power of God. That's, I hope the power of God is speaking right now. But that's, not the, that's just the tip of the iceberg of where the power should be coming from. The words are not the power. It's how you live your life. The the power of the gospel is how a person's life can be transformed as Trish gave testimony today. It's, it's, It's not just the words. It's the life that has been changed. It's the way the person is walking. That's the power. Look, Later on, Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, if I speak, if I have words of in the tongues of men and of angels... But if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging, clanging cymbal. If, if, if my life is not changed by the words that I speak and the words that I hear, then I, there is no power in my life. Loved ones, the most powerful sermon that a preacher could ever preach doesn't take place if, if, over 45 minutes or so on a Sunday morning. It takes place over the course of his life. And how he lives transformed by the gospel. Not perfection, but a a devotion to Jesus Christ. Yes, words are powerful. But a life characterized by love that's not puffed up, but that's humble and grateful. Loved ones, that's the power that Paul wants them to have. The kingdom of God does not consist of talk. It involves talk. But it involves power. The life transformation of the gospel. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, protect us from pride. Protect us from arrogance. Protect us from being puffed up. Lord, would you make us a grateful people? Would you make us a a people who rightly understand how we ought to relate to the world? And Lord, we thank you. Just even, I look around this room, there are so many people, there are so many believers, mature believers, some of them are even younger than I am, that I look up to because I, I see the way that you are working, Lord. 
And I, I pray that all of us would feel that weight, that the way that we are living our lives, that people are watching us, that we would be a church family that is filled with good examples that are worthy of emulating and imitating. Lord, we pray that you would make this so. We pray that our lives would not merely be characterized by talk, but by power. For your glory, Lord, and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.